Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. I've missed you guys so very much. How are you doing? We have missed you. So excited to be back. Yes, yes, it is. Tired, but ready. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So hello to all of our usual follow, all the usual audience members. A big shout out to all of you who are joining us for the first time. Yes. They're just really happy to be here. And without further ado, have we got a show for you. So Donnie and I are both really, really pleased to be able to welcome Susan Anderson to the show. She's the History Court uh, Curator and Program Manager at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, and a member of the editorial board of California History Journal. Previously, she was the Director of Library, Collections, Exhibitions, and Programs at the California Historical Society, which is headquartered in San Francisco. She served as interim chief curator for the African-American Museum and Library at Oakland and was a founder of Memory House, uh, a curatorial and public history consulting firm whose clients include the city of Berkeley, the Golden Gate National Recreational Area, the Richmond Museum of History and Mazizi Kwene Museum of, in Durban, South Africa. So, absolutely uh, just wonderful knowledge of, of African-American and Black history. As a curator at the UCLA Library Special Collections, she initiated the Collecting Los Angeles Project, which as a project has gathered, preserved, interpreted, and made accessible UCLA's library collection. This project documented the remarkable multiplicity of cultures and at-risk hidden histories in the Los Angeles region. And without further ado, oh, also she is the author of the, uh, she's the author of the forthcoming book, African Americans, The California Dream, which is under contract with Heyday Books. And without further ado, welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so pleased to, to have you on the show. Um, as we were saying before the cameras went live, um, Donnie and I spent the last month trying to find more information about African-Americans in the, America, the California gold rush and was kind of shocked that apart from books, there, there really isn't that much information about them out there. No, it's true. Um, the history of the West is still only a fraction of it has begun to be told. And within that, the history of African-Americans in the West is even farther behind. So in many ways, a lot of this is just starting to emerge. There have been people over the years that have written about it and researched it, but there's still so much more to dig up. Um, so for instance, there's a wonderful, a very authoritative history uh, Blacks in Gold Rush, California, that was written by Rudolph Lapp. It was published by Yale University Press, but it was published in 1977. And so there hasn't been a volume like that since. And in the work that I'm doing on my book, I'm trying to go beyond what's already been published and what's already been, been dug up. And because our audience is largely um, composed of genealogists and people who are really interested in genealogy and history and also resource librarians and research librarians, 
Um, can you talk about how you even got into the field of curating and historical research? Well, um, I've been doing this for quite some time. I'm very interested in California's African-American past. And it's partly because my own family has been in the state for many generations. Um, you know, we have a kind of a mythology um, that says that Black people came to California during World War II to work in the defense industry. And since my mother's family, both sets of great grandparents and their families arrived in California about 1880, I grew up with this sort of innate knowledge that that just couldn't be true, that there was a history, generations and decades of Black history that were being ignored um, as long as we held on to that great migration story as explaining the Black presence in California. So I've been doing this for, for um, a long time and I'm really happy with the book. I'm able to give it kind of a broad context, starting with the gold rush and actually coming through the 21st century. One of the things I wanna say, because as, uh, as you said, I know, that um, your audience is uh, people who do research, um, whether it's in you know, public records or archives and that kind of thing. And that's where the materials are. Uh, so for instance, in my chapter what I, uh, on the gold rush, I traveled to all of the places that I wrote about because that's where the local records are. That's where the primary source materials are in these small, these county libraries or in the local historical society collections. And um, they're, you know, and they're not to be found anywhere else. So I've, I've been putting a lot of, lot of miles on my car to, to get the research done. And they're not digitized, you know. Oh, that's well, that's important to know. Oh. So you really you really do have to physically go and, and take a look at them. Yeah, most things aren't digitized. I mean, I know that we are able and it's wonderful that we can access so many things now online. But as someone who's worked in a lot of very um, highly ranked libraries, university libraries, historical, our state historical society library, but believe me, what is online is a minute fraction of what is out there. So we still have to physically go to places to do research, no question about it. Because again, I'm, I'm not sure if people appreciate that there's a cost involved to digitize. One, it's, it's time consuming. Two, you need the equipment, the technology to do it. And not every small archive or specialist collection has the experience of doing that kind of fundraising to get the kind of money that that's necessary to do it. Or the servers. I mean, you can't just put a bunch of PDFs online. Um, and the other thing is there's just millions and millions and millions of items in, in collections. So 
it's not even realistic for us to think that everything's going to be digitized. And even though you're going to be talking about the, the gold rush, maybe you can answer a question that I've had for a long time, and I've never really known who I could ask this question to. So in terms of a Black or an African descended presence in California, does that actually go back to when the Spanish well, I yes. guess the Americanos actually. Yes, there were there were African descended people in California long before white Americans started showing up in any numbers. Mm. And there's uh, research that's been done um, that shows that under the Spanish system, under Spanish colonialism, which lasted until the 1820s, from the late not 18th century until the 18. 20s when Mexico fought its war of independence with Spain, that if you look at the pueblos that were founded <clears throat> by the Spanish crown, the people that were encouraged to leave Mexico and come up into Alta California, as it was called, there are huge numbers of them uh, that were people of African descent. Los Angeles is a good example the founders of Los Angeles in 1789 were 44 people, families who came, and out uh, and more than 50% of them were people of uh, African descent. Um, and we know this because the Spanish, like other European colonizers, kept very detailed. Um, census records that included information about caste and color. So it's a very different system that evolved in the United States. So we have, for instance, in a Pueblo like Los Angeles or Santa Barbara or all the other places from the Spanish period, we have the racial um, makeup of the people that settled California. So we know that because the Spaniards, you know, classified people, they were mestizo or they were mulatto or they were Indio. That's all in the records. Now, the records have existed since the 18th century, but white historians and the people that would sell, put on the festivals uh, celebrating, you know, the history of Santa Barbara or the history of Los Angeles, they um, suppressed that information. Mm. And um, then there were people over the years, and Miriam Matthews was one, she was the first Black librarian in the state of California. And um, there's a branch of the LA Public Library that's named after her. She was also a collector and a historian. And she was one of the people who spent decades fighting to reveal the racial makeup of the founders, Los Pobladores, the founders of the city of Los Angeles. And she was successful in doing that during the um, Olympics, I mean, I'm sorry, not the Olympics, the bicentennial, she was on a commission, Tom Bradley, Mayor Tom Bradley, put her on a commission that um, created a set of plaques 
that's in the spot that's considered uh, the founding, uh, uh, you know, area of Los Angeles. And now anybody in the world can go to that plaza and take a look. And each one of the pobladores, men, women, and children is named. Ooh. And also their racial uh, makeup is listed the way that it was in the Spanish census. See, also, just as a last point, the people who explored uh, the Americas, including California, um, like Cortez, included, they had African-descended sailors, uh, cooks, um, navigators uh, with them. So whenever the Spaniards, there was a huge African presence in Spain. And whenever the, you hear about the Spaniards coming to parts of the, the United States, you can be assured that there were African descended people as part of that Spanish conquest. Wow. See, that's why I love doing this show because every episode, I learned something new. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't know any of that. I'm just sitting here just in awe of you right now. That's why Brian's asking all the questions. I'm like, because I could not find anything and you are just like giving so much more than what we were expecting. Um, and I'm so appreciative of that. So I guess my question is, how did it, when did it, start going into this gold rush era and you know what was what was our part in it what part did we play as african-americans well uh, let me give a little context gold was discovered in coloma and the american river by john marshall in 1848 now i want to say that the native people of the area the miwok people they already knew there was gold. So gold wasn't really discovered, but it, the, the white settlers learned of these gold deposits. So let's put it that way. Okay. And um, <clears throat> this was a major event in United States history, actually in world history, because what happened once word got out that gold had been discovered in California, people from all over the world, from every continent, Latin America, Asia, Europe, came to the gold fields because they thought that they could enrich themselves. African-Americans in the United States were extremely interested in what was going on in California. First of all, because California was admitted to the United States as a state as part of the Compromise of 1850. It came in as a free state and Black people were all abolitionists and they cheered on this free state coming into the, coming into the Union. And they started wondering right away, you know, what are the prospects for our people with another free state, with the U.S. divided evenly between, between free and slave states at that time. And the, they, and African Americans were interested in California as a free state, 
They were highly interested in the gold rush and what that might mean, especially because as part of the compromise that brought California into the United States as a free state, the fugitive slave law was amended and became this draconian uh, law that put every black person, whether they were free or enslaved, in great danger. So the whole tenor of the country changed after California was admitted and into the union after the compromise of 1850. People who had felt a relative amount of freedom, black people, free black people in states like Massachusetts and New York were being hunted on the streets uh, by bounty hunters. And one of the things that the fugitive slave law did was it punished people for aiding fugitive slaves and it also rewarded people for aiding slaveholders in grabbing people. So there was an incentive, especially for white citizens to police black people's mobility. And California and the gold rush began to seem even more attractive with this new atmosphere under the fugitive slave law. And Frederick Douglass, all of the black newspapers, all of the abolitionist papers, Frederick Douglass was one of the most important intellectuals in the United States at the time. He finally sort of gave his blessing to people moving out West and going to California. And he is in his newspaper, he published uh, he, he published an article saying that the wealth of California belongs to colored as well as, as white. And uh -huh. to do what you have to do uh, to escape the dangers that, that people faced under the fugitive slave law. So there was a national, this was an, a, a, the gold rush was a national event. And, um, as I said, Black people around the country were paying attention. So wow. definitely free people of color there. What I'm just curious, what would have been that dynamics? For instance, say that I was an enslaver coming from South Carolina and I wanted to make my fortune finding goal in California. So I bring, I don't know, 10 of my most trusted enslaved people with me to California. Were they still considered enslaved or were they free? Well, a couple of things. First of all, more free Black people came to California, migrated voluntarily, than enslaved people came. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Brian. There were plenty of Southern slaveholders who brought enslaved people into the state to labor for them. And what happened was that even though the constitution of the state of California prohibited, uh, tolerate, did not tolerate slavery, the state legislature and the courts and the schools and the public sphere were dominated by pro-slavery whites. And so if someone brought enslaved people, if a white 
uh, slaveholder brought enslaved people into California. The black population in California was very, very active. And uh, the free black people who had come to the state were experienced abolitionists, teachers, campaigners to migrate from, you know, Massachusetts or New York or Ohio or Pennsylvania required a great deal of resources and grit. And the, this population had that. So they came to the state ready to, to continue their campaigning, ready to continue their fights. And they, if they discovered, uh, say, enslaved people being kept captive somewhere, they would raise the money to hire a lawyer, a white lawyer, because the, this, the law in California and in many states forbade black people from testifying in court. So they would hire a white lawyer, raise the money. Uh, they would talk about it in their newspapers and in their civic organizations and sue, take the man, take the slaveholder to court and sue. And there were some judges who said, yes, you're right. This constitution doesn't allow slavery he or she may go free, but many, many judges made court decisions on the side of the slaveholders. And in fact, in 1852, two years after statehood, because there were so many challenges to slavery in the courts, people fleeing, um, the state legislature in California passed its own fugitive slave law. Wow. <laughs> okay. But you, wow. You, would, you would, of course. Wow. So, um, now that you've given that, that particular context about it, what may, well, actually Bernice Bennett gave a good, a really good question. She says, how were the skills of the free people of color and the enslaved utilized during the gold rush? Well, I mean, people came and they ended up doing many things. Most people were not minors um, because there were hundreds of thousands of people coming to the state. And most people ended up developing businesses that provided services to the miners. Most people were farmers, ranchers, laborers, and cooks, that kind of thing. Although there were certainly many, many black miners as well. Um, so the big, the main economy was built around servicing those who were mining the gold. You know, they needed their clothes washed. They needed their food cooked. Um, people set up in tents. They set up restaurants and black women worked as laundresses. Um, Black men worked as barbers and cooks. 
uh, and laborers, but people also spread out beyond the gold fields and began farming and homesteading and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's one of the things about California. It's an enormous place. And the um, size of the, of the gold fields covered numerous uh, counties. Um, the, the, gold, the gold country was 120 miles from El Dorado County in the north down to um, uh, the Maricopa County, Mariposa County down in the south. So it was an enormous area, but the, the many, many counties around where people were building homes and farms and creating communities and towns and that kind of thing. So it sounds as though it was a real mix of grit especially if you were a miner, you know, working in those, what I can imagine are horrific conditions. You know, it's dark, it's moist, it's humid, it's hot. But it also sounds like there were also entrepreneurs who kind of like we do today, you spot a gap in the market. Okay, you need someone, you need a blacksmith to make tools, fix tools, cart, you know, cart rights and all that kind of stuff. I can do that. So rather than go down into the mine, I, you know, they would set themselves up in business. So that, that sounds like a really good mix. Yeah, during this time, there were really two kinds of mining. There was dry diggings and placer mining. The quartz mining, which is when you have stamps and you dig these big holes, would come much later. The gold was readily available in rivers and on the surfaces around the mountains at this point. Um, but it would be later that the hydraulic mines would get going where they had to dig, you know, dig deep to get to the gold. So in the early years of the gold rush, um, it was kind of, that was what drew, drew so many people was all these stories of people who would just be walking on a road and stumble over a gold nugget that was as big as a baseball or you know, that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes it was true and sometimes it wasn't. So I've got a question about land ownership. So you have all of these men from all over the country and as you were saying, from all over the, all over the world and they're panhandling, they're in the stream or in the mines or whatever they're doing. Who actually owned the lands that they were mining, you know, going for gold on and how much of the gold could they actually keep? Well, the way the two questions, one is the land question. Um, you know, these lands all we have to acknowledge were all part of the of the native people's patrimony. And first the Spanish, then the Mexican, then the United States stole these lands. And um so the land and, and the US during the gold rush was in a strange state for a while because the gold rush started in 1848. California wasn't part of the United States yet. Right. It right. had just, but it had seized this territory from Mexico. So there were these strange periods when, you know, who does own anything? The army, 
was in charge of California until it was admitted into oh. the United States in 1850. The army was in charge because it had vanquished the Mexican army. Um, but there was the miners had a very uh, explicit culture, very spelled out how claims were staked. It didn't mean that there weren't robberies and cheatings and all that. There were, but there was a system that most people did recognize about staking claims. Um, so, and there's been some, you know, some good writing about that. So that was clearly understood uh, the way those things were set up, that if you staked a claim and you were, you know, you were pulling out gold, then people recognized, you know, and, and respected the, that system. And is there any kind of um, an idea of what percentage of African-Americans actually had those claims? No, you know, one of the things I'd like to tell your listeners, because I know there are people that, that really dig into the census records and things like that, for instance, um, one of the things that is very problematic is that there, I think that the public records that are, are available about the Black population or the general, really the population overall, but certainly reflecting the African Americans in California during this time, the 1850 census, the, uh, then their 1860 census, the 1850 census was so poorly conducted that California conducted its own census in 1852. Mm. And that was messed up. And what I am finding digging into primary sources and records of the time is that the census, I don't, I do not have any confidence in the census as it reflects the black population at that time. It's because if you read church records or you read the records, you know, there were years of conventions of colored citizens of California. You know, the colored convention movement was very big in California. You read the colored convention proceedings or you read African-American newspapers um, California, the first black newspaper published in California was published in 1855. And from then on, uh, and that was during the height of the gold rush. And from then on, there were many, many, many black newspapers. But if you read those, there is such a contradiction, such a conflict between what black people themselves are saying their numbers are and what the census shows. So, you know, one year, the census will say there were 2000 uh, African-Americans in California, but the proceedings, the record of the colored convention that year says there are 6,000. Oh, wow. um, the church records show many, many more people. I was just looking at the census, the black names, that we know from the census just in El Dorado County, which is where gold was discovered, Coloma and El Dorado County. 
and there's maybe 20 names, but some of the best known African-American residents of Coloma, uh, are, their names are not in the census, like Andrew Monroe and others. So I, I, I actually, the census only has limited uh, a usefulness. And I think there were actually quite a few more Black people in California than, than the history books say, because most historians have relied on the census and not records that Black people produced. So well, wait, wait, Brian, let, me, let me ask this real quick question. So if, um, could it have been possible that it wasn't counted that way because they were counting like say they were counting um, a, a, a person who was of Mexican descent, saying they were actually Mexican when in actuality they were black. I mean, that just seems so weird to me that that number was so off like that. Were they counting others as something else when they were actually African-Americans? Um, what I am guessing is a few reasons have led to what I believe is a low census count of African-Americans during this period. One is that, okay, so California is a free state. That means there's no slave schedule in right. the census forms. The slave states had slave schedules so that Black people who were enslaved were counted. California didn't have that. Um, another thing is that um, I think that the census takers didn't care. I mean, there's that. I, they didn't, I don't think they went out of their way uh, to find Black people or count them. And I think another thing is, especially when you look at 1852, when the Fugitive Slave Law was passed, but even before that, in a country that had a fugitive slave law, I think a lot of black people avoided the census takers so that they would not be on some right. kind of public record. Right. So I think there's probably quite a few reasons why the, the records aren't accurate. Okay. So I guess to follow on from what Donia asked, um, do you see the same discrepancy in numbers for, um, I suppose, white settlers in California? Or I wasn't looking, so I honestly can't say. Okay. I was only focused on, you know, comparing the black black kept black records, records that were generated by black institutions and people and the census, and I didn't look at anything else. But you do raise a good point. I mean, if you don't have trust in the government, um, considering what was going on at the time, it never occurred to me that people would, would actively try to avoid being counted. It's very much like now people who are undocumented, mm -hmm. you know, they're supposed to be, everybody's supposed to be counted. But as you just said, Brian, if you have a reason to fear the government, and people did have reason, Black people did have reason to fear the government. When you have a federal government and a Congress that passed a, a law um, 
you know, that made, that turned the whole country into bounty hunters, people hunting black people. Right. So why would you, why would you put your name up there? Right. To, right. to report your presence, even right. in California. Sorry, I can hear the genealogist in our in our audience groaning because you know all about the paper trail and genealogical. I mean, it it that's a that's that's just a blower. Well, she you know that, that it's just that just messed up everybody who's researching in California because well it it messed them up, but then it didn't because if they can't find them now, they know why. That's but it's well, and what's weird to me is knowing names so for instance i'm like i have several dear friends who are descendants of enslaved people who came to california during this time and i'm actually writing about their ancestors who were very important and really made a difference in their time and their ancestors in certain decades their ancestors they're not in the census, even though there are newspaper articles written about them and, you know. Wow, that's amazing. So Susan, would you, in that instance, would you suggest that people do their research on Black churches of the time period, Black newspapers of the time period? Would they have more information? You, I think that I'm finding I, that I have to look at all of that. Right. Um, and I feel, I mean, all researchers have biases and I'm a historian and I have my biases and I trust what the black sources are telling me more than I trust anything else. And part of the reason is, so for instance, like the Convention of Colored Citizens of California, you know, the convention movement was a national movement and uh, that started after the, the, the white riots in, in Cincinnati that drove the black population out. And um, in 1830, it's the first colored convention. And then by 1855, California had its first one. And um, there were people assigned to committees as part of the colored convention in California, whose job it was to count the black people in California, to report on their numbers, to report on their the property that they held, the value of that property, things like that. So I do feel that they were more conscientious in their record keeping than the census that the census bureau was or other government agencies and where are those kind of records kept well the colored convention as i said was a national movement and luckily there the proceedings of the colored conventions have all been preserved and over the years, I had to, I used to have to go to the library to read the bound volumes of the colored convention proceedings. But now um, there is a, a consortium of universities um, and scholars who have put together an online 
uh, um, uh, source uh, for getting access to the colored convention proceedings in across all the states. So anybody can Google colored conventions and it'll take you to the website. Hmm. Excellent. And one last one for me is what was the typical kind of day like for, um, for a gold miner? Like when did, when did you get up? When did you get the tools ready? When did you actually start, start padding for gold? Well, I think people got up first thing in the morning. What I want to mention too, I hope you don't mind, but it's not exactly the answer to your question. But one of the most interesting things to me were the uh, examples that I found of African-Americans who owned gold mines. Oh. I, it took a lot of resources, almost nobody, no matter what their race was, could own a gold mine, especially after hydraulic mining started. But there were Black-owned mines. Uh, one of them I visited, um, there's a woman who's the expert on this region of Yuba County called Browns Valley that has thousands of abandoned mines from that period. California has 47,000 abandoned mines and it's actually a, a dangerous, but um, she is pretty sure that this was the black owned mine that I was looking for. So I, I went way up to Yuba County and it was called the Sweet Vengeance Mine. And it was founded by, um, we know the men's names. We know what states they came from. We know about their lives. Uh, Gabriel Sims, Fritz James Vosberg, Abraham Freeman, Holland, Edward Duplex. Actually, Edward Duplex was um, elected the mayor of Wheatland in Yuba County in 1888. Um, at James Cousin and Jackie, Jesse McGowan. And they were, and there was even an article in William Garrison, w William Lloyd Garrison, you know, the famous white abolitionist, mm -hmm. his newspaper, The Liberator, uh, had an article um, written by two very famous black abolitionists, William Wells Brown, who wrote the novel Clotel, and Robert Purvis who was a leader in the anti-slavery movement in Pennsylvania, they went to California and reported on the Sweet Vengeance Mine for William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper. And there were others too down in Mariposa County owned by Moses Rogers and their stories and their families and, and what they were accomplished civically as well as their wealth are stories that I tell in my book chapter on the gold rush. Well, we have um, a lot of questions on here. And I think Brian, you said that was your last one. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on here. And um, one, of, one of the questions were, are you aware of black towns being created during the gold rush? But it sounds like that's what you were just talking about. Black towns? Yes. Well, you know, Black towns, uh, I just gave a lecture on the Black town movement. Um, and because we have a famous town in California that has survived as a state historic park, Allensworth, 
named after Colonel Allen Allensworth, who was a chaplain. He was the highest ranking chaplain in the United States Army when he retired in 1906. Um, the Blacktown movement, I mean, there were Blacktowns that were established starting in the 1830s. But the Blacktown movement really got underway um, after uh, quite a bit after the gold rush. It got underway when Reconstruction fell and when the uh, Southern states started, you know, passing the Black Codes, mm -hmm. the rise of the Ku Klux Klan with the economic exploitation of the people who are forced to continue working on plantations, there was something called the Kansas fever exodus. And people mostly from the Gulf states, um, but from several states were fleeing in the thousands. In one month, 6,000 people left Texas and Mississippi and South Carolina. And in fact, so many people to go west, to go to Kansas. And there were so many people that left the South that the United States Senate held hearings on it. And this is really the, the real beginning of the black town movement, first in Kansas and all of those towns that were established there, many of them still around like Bowley. Bowley was famous, Booker T. Washington visited. It had, you know, all kinds of extraordinary things going on. Oklahoma was another place that the people, they were called exodusters as they were leaving the South. Uh, Texas had more than 500 black settlements. There were, I think it's, I haven't I've confirmed this, but I actually think all 50 states had black settlements or towns of one type or another. The concentration was really in the West. Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly had quite a few here in California as well. But as I'm saying, it started qu uh, quite a bit later. It was really post reconstruction after the civil war, after reconstruction that that movement really began. It makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, another person, while you were talking about the California fugitive law, slave law, um, uh, one person, E.J. Scott, asked, did this happen when they banned Chinese women? No. Um, so that was two different things. That was later. Okay. The fugitive slave law, the, the laws, the Laws in California that were rooted in racial uh, injustice and social inequity were first aimed at Black and Native people. And then uh, by the turn of the century, at the end of the century, in the 70s and 80s and 1880s, 1890s, that was the height of the exclusion movement. And both California and then the United States federal government passed anti-Chinese exclusion laws at the end of the 19th century. But the first movement was against 
uh, was against African-Americans. And California and quite a few other states, uh, some states were successful, like the state of Oregon, in passing laws to ban Black migration into the state. People, you know, there's a there's a, a, a joke. People wonder why Oregon is so white. If you look at states that have these kind of extraordinarily white populations, there's a reason why. Just uh -huh. like there's a reason why the suburbs are white, because of the way the law and private interests worked together to keep them white. In California, the legislature for about eight years in the 1850s tried every year to pass a Negro exclusion bill to ban Blacks from coming into the state. They were never successful in doing it, but it shows you what their intentions were. That, that, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so um, Trudy Talaferro and others also asked this kind of the same, this same question. It was basically based on when you were talking about the entrepreneurship and people doing what they were doing. So I guess um, to wrap up her question along with other people's question, do you guys have names of those entrepreneurs? And, oh, yeah. Okay, yes. because like she's named her grandfather, Amos Harris. Then there was another one named Nate Harrison. Um, where, where does she say where, um, she said he, she just said that he came from Ohio and he was an entrepreneur. Um, if she is listening, could you please tell me where in California she's listening? <laughs> and then, um, well, then there was another person who also made that comment as well. Uh, where is it? I think it was Yvette Porter talked about her relative, Nate Harrison. Okay. But did she the put name it? Nate Harrison is familiar, and I'm trying to find out where he was. Calum because I have a lot Calamar of Mountain is where she Cal said. Calamar Mountain? Calamar Mountain. Where is that? They need to tell me. Okay, she says, I am researching Nate Harrison of San Diego who homesteaded land on Palomar oh. Mountain. Okay, San Diego. Yeah. All right. Good. And well, she says, I'm searching for a slave owner to get better understanding of his beginnings in, into California. And just wondering if you had heard of him. I don't have any more information than she has just because I haven't dug into it. Okay. I'm unable to write about everybody. Okay. Um, but I would love for her to stay in touch with me, write me at CAM and let me know how your research is going. Okay. And maybe we can do some programs about, about it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Then there was another question. Everyone wanted to know, what was the name of the first African-American newspaper in California? That, Mirror, that started of the, Mirror of the Times. Mirror, M-I-R-R-O-R? -R -R? Yes. Mirror of the Times, 1855. It didn't last forever, but then it was followed by the Pacific Appeal and the Elevator newspaper. These are all 19th century newspapers that were published in San Francisco. Those were the first three black newspapers. 
And then in 1879 in Los Angeles, the um, California Eagle started publishing. It was first called the Owl and then it was called the California Eagle. So by the 19th, you know, in the 19th century, California had at least four black newspapers. Wow. Well, I think I have time for one last question. And this one is from Henry Goins. And he says, do you know um, the story of Mary Ellen Pleasant, who was in San Francisco in 1850? I, I certainly do. And, um, you know, one of the things about Mary Ellen Pleasant in that whole community of Black San Franciscans during slavery during the 19th century, because you know, Mary Ellen Pleasant died in the 21st century. And uh, I mean, the 20th century, I'm sorry. Um, very, she lived a very long life. Was there were quite a few quite wealthy people. Now, Mary Ellen Pleasant, George Washington Dennis, they were some of the wealthiest people in the city of San Francisco. And they are all, they were formerly enslaved people. They were very, they were leaders in the movement to free uh, enslaved people in California. They put their money up to pay for court costs, to pay for attorneys, to buy advertising in newspapers when these cases came out. Mary Ellen Pleasant was one of the wealthiest people in San Francisco. She owned boarding houses and restaurants and real estate and gold mines and stocks. She came to California as a wealthy woman. Um, she used her money in anti-slavery causes. She, her mansion, she let Archie Lee stay there as a fugitive when his case was going to court. On her gravestone is written friend of John Brown. And um, she was acquainted with John Brown and apparently traveled to Chatham, Canada, which was a major stop on the Underground Railroad uh, to meet with him and help finance his work uh, and and she did uh, help finance his raid on Harper's uh, Ferry. And there are other African-Americans. Um, uh, William, um, now I'm forgetting his, his last name, who was a really well-known poet, who was also a good friend of, of uh, John Brown in Chatham, Canada, moved to San Francisco and wrote a lot of poetry that was published during that time, very stirring poetry during the Civil War. They were two people in San Francisco that were friends of John Brown. Um, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that to everybody was not an abolitionist. Right. Black people were abolitionists. Right. Most people and most whites in the Republican Party didn't want to see slavery expand beyond the South. Black people wanted the immediate emancipation of all Black people. That was a radical position. And it's like today, you know, people are afraid to hear defund the police. Um, and it sounds radical, but the country is suffering because it keeps trying to make compromises 
the African Americans are saying, no, do this so that we can transform things. And the country keeps compromising, compromising. And that's why we had a civil war because of the compromises with, with slavery. People like Mary Ellen Pleasant and others, these were, these were radical people who used their wealth and, and their position um, you know, to make change. And for me, that's the story of California. I mean, I'm kind of proud of my state and, the, and my people in California. It's partly how you understand why California became the home to the Black Power movement. Hmm. Because for more than a century, you know, these people starting with the gold rush uh, had been using their relative freedoms to really push the boundaries on these issues. And I'm just going to jump in, and it's probably taking something that Susan said, and um, correct me if I'm wrong. It's to answer the question, the lady who had the ancestor in San Diego. My advice would be to research the formation of courthouses in the San Diego region, and then start looking to see if there were court cases. If you really suspect that your ancestor entered the state enslaved, start looking at court records. And his, his, you know, he may have a case, and that's where you can expect to find it. Well, she and did respond. San, Di on here. San Diego has a wonderful historical society that's done a lot of work on Black San Diego. Well, she did respond. She talked about how he came through and everything, but because we are down at the wire of the time, and this has just been such an awesome show, um, very, very informative. You know, my mom, she kind of burned me <laughs> with California because I'll have to tell you that later. But, you know, I was, I, I'm now I, I want to visit and I want to know more. So I wanted to, you know, definitely share with everyone that Susan Anderson can definitely be found at the California African American Museum. Is it open? It, we are open. Yes, people can come visit us. And if your audience would like, please you feel free to email me at sanderson at cammuseum.org. C-A-A-M-U-S-E-U-M.org. Well, thank you very much for that generous offer. And it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I have, I have learned so much, so I'm, I'm really excited. Um, and thank you for um, just being so generous with your time and with your knowledge. Yes, thank you Appreciate. so much. It's been great talking to you guys. Stay in touch. <laughs> well, um, you wanna do a, a real quick of next week's show? You got to clock out. I, I can hear our producer's heart palpitations starting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Donya, you guys. Um, we're so glad to be back. And uh, I'm Donya. I'm Brian. And we will see you next week, 4 p.m. right here on Facebook. All right. Bye.